When I read this passage for this morning, I was returning to the same question over and over. Does devotion to Jesus have a fragrance? Can we smell it? I started thinking about smells, and you'll see why. And smells help us to relate closely to our experiences in life. So I started thinking about, you know, like, for me, bacon. Any other fans of the smell of bacon? All right, Sharon's like, yeah, you almost jumped out of your chair. I saw you. Like, I smell bacon, and it takes me back to when I was a kid. My mom used to always make, she's a good cook. She used to make breakfast for my brother and I every morning before school. And back in those days, like, man, our breakfast contained bacon just about every morning, you know, like, which is great. Um, so when I smell the deliciousness of bacon, I'm reminded that bacon makes everything better. Sharon, you with me? Marsh, all right. Good. Um, other things that came to mind, like when I smell Pierre Cardin aftershave, that's what my dad wore, right? Still probably still does. Um, and it reminded me of him getting like all suited up to go to work, you know? When I smell Axe body spray, I'm reminded of how many summer and winter camps I went and how much time I spent with middle school boys. Yes. Um, and then I was thinking about like more serious things, like when I smell burning trash, right? Anytime I smell that smell, I'm reminded of my first trip to Mexico when I went to build houses with the Moor. And the reason is because these houses that we were building were right next to the city dump, which was right next to the crematorium. So it was a very um, odd combination of smells. And so anytime I smell that, I get this memory of these poor women and children with no shoes picking through these rubbish heaps in outside of Tijuana, right? And so this is what a smell does. As soon as I smell burning trash, I can see these people picking through the trash. It's like smell is really very powerful. Um, so we already established, Sharon, you, you like bacon. Other, does anyone have like a something like that that brings back a smell, that brings back a memory, or just even a favorite smell? Yeah, Wendy, what do you think? Oh, yeah. That sounds good. All right, good. Any other ones? Anyone else have one of those that just, yeah, Commodore, what do you think? Yeah? Wonder bread of all things. Nice. Yeah, Marcia. Mm. Yeah. Corned beef and cabbage. Yeah, good. Yeah, very good. You guys will have to compare notes. Dustin just made some corned beef. How did it turn out? You never said. Oh, good. Okay. So we have some corned beef. All right. <laughs> good. Yes. <coughs> you only live once. Right. Any others that I missed? Somebody that just has one that they just want to share. Jeff, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. At first, I wasn't sure where we were going. Yeah. I'm glad you ended up there, though, because... Yeah. Oh, I don't know. No, yeah. No, I... I didn't. Only, only God knew. Um, so today we're going to talk, you're, you'll see why we're talking about this. Um, I think it's going to make perfect sense um, that I wonder if the smell that the people that were in the room with Jesus this day, what, what we're going to talk about, I, I guarantee you these people are going to remember this moment and have this as kind of an association, right? So today's the fifth Sunday in Lent. Lent is this 40-day period that focuses our attention on the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, it's the season of preparation. It's the season of repentance. Um, and so we just remember that the historical church has always taught that we not only people that give things up for Lent, but we also take things on, which is why we take on that jar that's back at our generosity table back there, because we want to participate in serving our community. And this is just a great Lenten practice, something that we've done together uh, since we opened a few years ago. Um, so how are we doing on our Lenten commitments? Anybody? Anybody still holding strong? Wendy? Yes, it good. I am. No Amazon Prime. This is Lent week five. I'm cruising. It's not, I'm like, now it's, I'm good. I don't even miss it. This is great. This is going to be the best thing that ever happened to me. You don't believe me? Katie doesn't believe me either, but I'm serious. I think I'm doing really well. Uh, I gave up Amazon Prime for Lent. Yes. Yeah. For one day. Okay. Hey, one day is better than none. And remember, this is why I say, I say every Sunday, your Lenten commitment just gets easier every week. So you only have two weeks if you start today, right? So, but this, there's never, it's never too late to start something. It's just a practice or a discipline. Anyway, one day. <laughs> That's awesome. Today, we're going to be talking about an expensive jar of perfume. A familiar story to a lot of people, one that was just lavishly used to anoint Jesus in life and in death. This wild emotional response that at least one of Jesus' disciples could not stomach the smell of. It's Jesus' rapidly approaching death that makes this reckless gift of love all the more appropriate. So as we read the word of God together, let's invite God to speak. Let's pray. Loving God, may we open ourselves to the seeds of your wisdom that lie dormant in the reading of this word. May our hearts, minds, and whole lives be fertile soil in which it may grow strong and true. Amen. Amen. Here it is, John 12, 1 to 8. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There he gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The word of the Lord. And so John chapter 12 begins the final week of Jesus's life. This final week 
spans nine consecutive chapters in John's gospel. It covers almost half of his gospel the last week of his life. It's that important. And so Jesus has arrived in Bethany. Bethany is only about two miles outside the city of Jerusalem, so Jesus is almost there. Not only was Bethany on the way to Jerusalem, but it's also the home of his dear friends, Mary, your sister Martha, and their brother Lazarus, whom Jesus had just brought out of the grave after four days. So this is the context in which this story takes place. Jesus, uh, his own death is rapidly approaching, but there's this pause button hit here in Scripture, this beautiful moment where Jesus is going to dine with some of the closest friends that he has in the world. We've all been in situations where a nice family dinner or social event goes a little sideways. It gets a little weird. Somebody brings up politics or religion. Uh, something unusual happens. Um, like, when that happens to me, I just go completely silent. I'll just sit there. I won't say a word. I'll watch, I'll observe, I'll listen, I'll try to wait it out, hoping that it'll all just go away, right? Um, I was interested in this because Jesus just takes this head on. He doesn't do what I do. He just deals with the issue at hand head on. Martha's been faithfully slaving away in the kitchen, cooking this incredible dinner. Lazarus is very much alive and well, reclining at the table with Jesus. But it's their sister, Mary, who steals the show here. Mary anoints Jesus' feet with this expensive perfume, dried, think about this, dried his feet with her hair. Is anybody offended yet? Does that offend anybody? Well, it offended Judas, big time, okay? Now, it doesn't seem like much to us today, but we have to know that a woman letting her hair down in the first century with a man who's not her husband is a public no-no. It's still that way in some cultures, even today. It was taboo for a man to be touched by a woman like this. And Judas is offended by this. There's no doubt that this is one of the more beautiful and more intimate moments that we see in all of the New Testament. It's very personal and private, but clearly John writes it down because he thinks that it's worth remembering. And as I reflect on this story, I think John wrote it down also because I think it's worth imitating. It's worth reflecting on, but it's worth imitating. And so Judas is outraged. Jesus has no problem whatsoever with this display or Mary letting her hair down or even touching him. He doesn't regard this as uh, this intimacy as inappropriate. In fact, he welcomes this extravagant gift that she gives him. And so Judas, however, he takes the opportunity to grandstand. He claims to care about the poor so much that this lavish display uh, is just a tremendous waste of precious resources. Now, the jar was worth a lot of money. So when you do the math on the money, they say that 300 denarii is the equivalent to the annual wage of a laborer. So it's a lot of money. It's like someone's entire job worth of a whole year of doing their job it costs to buy this expensive perfume. Now, there probably are some perfume experts in this room. I am not one of them. I did a little research for my preparation. I wanted to find out what was the most expensive jar of perfume ever sold. All right, are you ready? 2011, DKNY unveiled its golden apple-shaped million-dollar bottle of perfume. All right. 2,900 precious stones, 14 karat gold, sapphires, diamonds, and stones that I don't even know what they are. I can't pronounce them, so I didn't write them down. (laughs) Um, And the entire bottle was made to mimic the New York City skyline, okay? 
it took 1,500 hours to make this one bottle. And then, of course, it has perfume in it. Um, and it sold to one enthusiast for $1 million. Now, the best part about this is that 100% of the proceeds went to charity, which is really cool, this global charity called Action Against Hunger. Mary's expensive perfume that she spent, that she just, you know, she takes this expensive perfume and you're like, oh, could the money go to charity? No, it's dumped on the stinky feet of Jesus. Think about this, for real. <laughs> this, is, this is serious. This is what she does with that. And so you can understand, like pragmatically, we understand the concern. The money could have been used like the DKNY million-dollar perfume to fight world hunger. Instead, it's like Judas is making this point. It's frivolously wasted on Jesus. This, of course, begs us to ask an important question. Is there even such a thing as an act of a wasted act of devotion on Jesus? Is this even possible? That there's such a thing that when somebody acts out of devotion to Christ that it could be seen as a wasteful act. And I think you're right. I think the answer is absolutely not. This is where Jesus is going. And so like, even as people in a small church, we understand uh, how precious our hard-earned resources are. And we understand that these resources that we collectively generously give can be used to do great things in our community and our world. Like We don't want one dollar to be misspent. It's really important to us. But what John does is he just exposes Judas as a fraud. Judas was the disciple in charge of the money. He's evidently not only a liar, but a thief who cares about his own personal gain, and he cares very little about the poor. Jesus's good friend Mary now has been publicly attacked by one of Jesus's own disciples. Everyone in the room must have been wondering, WWJD, like, what is Jesus going to do? You know? Um, and this is why I think I like it. He just comes, immediately comes to her defense. He tells Judas to back off. And then he says something that I've always wished he would have done something different. Like either explained it because it's so, it's been so misused and misunderstood. Or just at least like, you know, elaborated on it and, t- and told us what he meant by it. But I'm going to help you with that. Jesus said, or just, I wish he just didn't say it. But he did. So we're going to deal with it. He says, you'll always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And here's what that statement has done. In some people, it's been used to justify apathy in the face of poverty. It's been used to downplay meeting people's real physical material needs in favor of just meeting spiritual needs. And here's the thing. This is the exact opposite of what Jesus intends. And I'm going to explain why. He's almost certainly paraphrasing from Deuteronomy 15.11. And so if he's paraphrasing from Deuteronomy 15.11, then we need to understand the context of Deuteronomy. This is a command of God. Here it is in its original context. Like, this is really good stuff. This is what God says in Deuteronomy 15.11. Since there will never cease to be people in need on the earth, and hear it, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor. Open your hand to the poor and needy in your land. It's a command of God to do the exact opposite of what some people have taken Jesus to mean. And so, like, I read this, I was so relieved, you know, Um, because we know that when we read Scripture, especially the Gospels, that Jesus is in no way diminishing the seriousness of poverty. We all know that. Jesus himself even said that he came to bring good news to who? To the poor, right? Right? 
So we know that. And Jesus is always challenging these oppressive political and economic and social structures, always meeting the real needs of people around him. And so Mary knew that at that moment, the time, that exact moment in time, that the person with the, the most need, that person was Jesus himself. And so Mary is going to meet that need. And so you look at this gift. It's this gift that celebrates the life of her brother. Can you imagine being her? This gift celebrates the life of her brother whom Jesus has just raised. But John takes it even further. Oil was used also to anoint kings. It was used to bury the dead. And so what we have is we have Mary uh, using this perfume for both of these reasons at the same time. Jesus' death is approaching. Um, He's not going to be with us much longer. We have uh, the poor and the needy, and Jesus actually leaves this mission in the hands of us, those that follow him, people like you and me, and it's quite the opposite of apathy toward the poor and hurting. It's very possible that Jesus actually is giving a command very similar to God's command in Deuteronomy 15, to always have Jesus' mission to the poor in the forefront of our thoughts and actions. When I studied this, this is where I went to. He's paraphrasing this verse. It's important to him. He wants us to always have this in mind. But Mary was meeting an immediate need. Jesus is sitting right in front of her. And one of the things that really jumped out at me when I was reading this passage is this elevated role of women. These passages are becoming some of my absolute favorites. What does Mary do? Mary anoints the anointed one. Think about this. Messiah means anointed. Mary essentially is crowning Jesus as her king. So we look in Western culture. The Pope, a man, would be crowned by the king, another man. Kings, in turn, were crowned by popes. Okay? Jesus is crowned by a woman, by Mary of Bethany. Now, conspiracy theorists, which there are some out there that write a lot of novels that people like to read, Um, They try to make something more out of this relationship between Jesus and Mary than our biblical writers do, Um, which makes for exciting novels, but it doesn't help us in discipleship. To Jesus, women are not sexual objects. They're complete equals in the realm of God. And we see Mary anointing Jesus with this perfume. She's the one that is going to do exactly what Jesus is going to ask all of his disciples to do in the next chapter. Feet washing, John chapter 13. She's ahead. See what's happened here. She's ahead of the game. She's doing what Jesus is going to command all disciples to do in serving uh, the world and in serving Jesus. Mary's the one who gets it right. Judas is the one who gets it wrong. And so Jesus says he's not going to be around much longer. Now, I've already noted that this anointing is the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life. He's two miles away from Jerusalem two miles away from destiny, two miles away from the place of his death, and he knows he has to be on his way. And so what John wants us to see is that Mary's anointing is this act of devotion to Jesus. She'd been keeping, the scripture says, this expensive jar of perfume to anoint Jesus' body at his death. Being denied a proper burial uh, was kind of one of the more humiliating indignities that an ancient Jew could suffer. This is really important stuff. The rabbis would say that they have an obligation uh, to the dead. The Jewish Talmud actually praised the care of the dead even ahead of almsgiving. This is a big deal. It's really, really important. And maybe Mary is really concerned here. The things are about to go so crazy. 
But things are about to go so sideways that Jesus might never receive the burial that he deserves. And it's like that makes her act of love all the more prophetic. She anoints Jesus in his life, and she anoints him for his death. And so when she broke open that jar of anointing oil, every corner, it says, every corner of that room would have been filled with this wonderful aroma. Maybe that aroma even enabled Jesus to take his mind off just for a moment of his impending suffering. Think about this. Jesus, who was always ministering to the needs of others, has this special moment where for this one time, his needs are being ministered to by one of his closest friends. Smells can penetrate the recess of our imagination that other senses can't even touch. This is a really cool scripture. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthian church wrote this. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing him. How cool is that? Paul offers us a way to share the beautiful aroma of devotion to Jesus so that it might fill every corner of the world. So we who know Jesus can be this sweet-smelling aroma to the world with every act of mercy, with every act of devotion done in Jesus' name, with every gift given or act of generosity. We spread the fragrance that comes from knowing Jesus. I want to finish by just sharing one thing that this passage did for me. Mary, for me, gets me out of my own head and puts me more in touch with my own heart and my physical body. And for me, this is important. Has anyone ever done like strengths finders or Enneagram before or anything like that? A few people? So my two strengths at the top of my strengths finders, which won't mean much unless you know it, are intellection and learner, and I'm a six on the Enneagram. And so what that means is uh, not that I'm smart. Everybody knows that that's not true. Um, but here's what it means. It means that I spend a lot of time in my head. That's what the, those things mean. On both of those things will say the same thing about me. I can uh, spend a lot of time reading and thinking, studying, dreaming, learning. I like to learn about just about everything. This week was how to grow a giant pumpkin for Halloween. So, like, I spent hours researching how do I grow a giant pumpkin for Halloween. Like, once I start something, I want to know everything about that subject matter, and I won't rest until I get all the information that I'm looking for, you know? Today, it's going to be citrus trees, Right? So this is just what I do. But what Mary did for me when I read this and studied it was she reminds me that Christianity is not just a head-only deal, right? She shows us something completely different. Many Christians stress that right belief is the only thing that matters, just believe the right things. And what Mary says, I don't want to, belief's important. I don't want to downplay belief. But at the same time, it's not the only thing. She doesn't think her way to devotion. She acts, she shows it. And what it says is her actions smell good. They smell good not only to her, to God, but to the whole world. So we're not going to be afraid of our heart and body responses. These things are really important. They're just as valid as what we believe. Our bodies and emotions are created by God. They're to be used in worship um, and in service of our king. So maybe the question is, as we leave, is like, what is the lavish gift that you might offer Jesus as an act of devotion? Hopefully we can all think about that question. 
May the fragrance that we spread through all of our acts of devotion and service be pleasing not only to God, but to the world around us as well. And may this fragrance reach, that love this from Paul, reach the ends of the earth that all might smell the sweet fragrance of knowing Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Merciful God, we're grateful for the witness of Scripture to this faithful woman who shows us what discipleship looks like and what devotion smells like. May the things that we say and do be a pleasing aroma not only to you, God, but to those around us that helps others know your son more fully. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.